All right, we're in Hebrews 11 just for a minute. So if you want to turn to Hebrews 11, that's going to be our starting point. And then we're going all the way back to Genesis um, chapter 25. So if you want to go ahead and put your finger in Genesis 25. In the last few weeks, we've had a series. We started a series of sermons called Faith Photographs. We're working our way through Hebrews chapter 11, which is the Heroes of the Faith chapter. And uh, we're taking our time going through this chapter, considering why the Hebrews pastor brought up these heroes. What's heroic about their faith? Or what can we learn about faith by just taking the time to dedicate a Sunday per hero? And uh, so this morning, we're going to consider Isaac. And I'm going to read a few verses in front of our focus verse, verse 20, just for the sake of context, just so you know where Isaac landed, how he, how he became Isaac. I'm going to start in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. If you weren't here last week, you need to listen to that sermon. It's a very important sermon to make sense of uh, Abraham offering up Isaac, and that's the context for last week, but is connected to this week's context. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's our focus passage this morning and really our springboard to send us all the way back to Genesis uh, beginning in chapter 25. Now as you're turning there, hopefully you're turning there or you already have a finger in that place, I want to just kind of shoot the elephant. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau and the blessing of Jacob and Esau, then you're, I hope you are um, maybe confused, maybe intrigued, maybe um, really interested in what, about what is about to unfold. Why in the wide world of sports would the Hebrews preacher use that specific thing about Isaac? If you know the story, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're scratching your head, you're doing what you're supposed to do. If you're not familiar enough with the story, that's okay because we're going to climb into it this morning. But I want to just go ahead and point out the elephant, if not shoot it. Why in the world this story? How was this a faith snapshot? It's a pretty cool week we have this week studying this story. A couple of things that I want to do before we really climb into Isaac's context, I want to share a couple of blessings. Brad shared this a couple of weeks ago about Abraham's story and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And there's a few different passages over the course of some Genesis chapters where God shares the covenant again or recasts the covenant and shares the details of the covenant as a blessing. And one of those specific uh, offerings that God shared with um, Abraham was in chapter 22, verse 16. You don't need to turn there. This is all context. This is the promise that was made to Abraham. And what's really cool about this specific version of it is Isaac was sitting right there. The other times that God shared with Abraham, Isaac wasn't there yet, or Isaac was a wee baby and he wouldn't have connected to it. But at this moment, he's grown enough to know that he was almost just sacrificed. He may have still been breathing hard when God, through the angel of the Lord, shared this with Abraham. He heard these words as a young man. The angel of the Lord says, to Abraham in chapter 22, verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Listen to the details of the covenant, or the promise, or the, the blessing. I will surely bless you. I will multiply, surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. 
Some details of the blessing that are going to sound familiar later on this morning. I will bless you. I will multiply your offspring. Your offspring shall possess the gate of your enemies. In other words, they're going to own those cities. Your offspring is going to possess those lands. And all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. And we know the good news of that is that that's via his offspring, the promised child, Jesus. Now, sometime after this sacrifice event, sometime after this time where Isaac heard those words that the angel of the Lord communicated to Abraham, Isaac is in earshot. Abraham sends his servant, Eleazar, to find a wife for Isaac. He sends him to his brother's family, his brother Nahor, and God leads Eleazar to a young woman named Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah are later married when he is 40 years old. Just a little background information we'll come back to later. Now, fast forward. I don't know how many years at this point, but it's, a, it's decades at this point. It's on beyond the marriage, on beyond the birth of these twins. These, birth, these twins are teenagers or at least young men at this point. God reminds Isaac of the blessing and gives Isaac a specific blessing. In chapter 26, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. We're going to come back to 25. This is still background. So I hear pages turning. You can turn if you want to. I'm totally not going to keep you from looking at a passage that I'm mentioning. But I'm just reading one little section, and then we're going to come back and just really get into it, immerse ourselves into the story beginning in chapter 25. This is all background. There was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. I will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands." And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Sound familiar? I hope it does. It's a consistent blessing. Now keep in mind, Isaac hears these words while they're experiencing a famine. This seems to be a theme. Abraham heard those words while they were experiencing a famine. Big promises made by God in the context of famine and barrenness. Keep that in mind later on this morning. Big promises made by our God in the context of famine and barrenness. It seems to be a theme. Isaac hears these words also while he's in exile in the land of the Philistines in Gerar. And oh, by the way, at this point, he's 70 or 80 years old. At this point, he owns zero property. The big promises that have been made to him, at this point, he's being reminded of these promises, and yet still, he doesn't own an acre. And God promises him, he says, stay here, Isaac, where the famine is, and I'll be with you, and I'll bless you. Don't go to Egypt. I'm going to give you all these lands, and I'm going to multiply your offspring, and the nations will be blessed through them. That's all context. These blessings, hopefully, will be familiar to you later because of how we've just spent the last few moments. Now, let me build up some context, build out some, flesh out some context for Isaac. Isaac doesn't get a lot of airtime in our Bible. He's a key figure, but he doesn't get a lot of airtime. We don't know a lot of details about Isaac. There's some things that we can expect. We can expect that Isaac likely learned of the covenant from his father at an early age. We know that he overheard that at the sacrifice event, what the the angel of the Lord promised to Abraham. I wonder if Isaac, like his father, had a faith-fueled pioneering spirit to go to a land he'd never seen. We don't know that for sure, but I wonder if he was wired like his father We know at this point that he at least had the faith to stay and he didn't go to Egypt. We can wonder at this point, does faith beget faith? 
We can hope so. It doesn't work that way as a rule. There have been some faithful men and women that had some kids that weren't faithful. Nadab and Abihu, uh, Phineas and Hophni, Samuel's sons. There's pastor's kids that you hear about that go south. Man, things don't work that way as a rule. But for the most part, we can hope and pray that it looks like right here that faith would beget faith. Abraham's faith would lead to faith in Isaac. I wonder, too, if Isaac heard from his mother how important he was to God's plan. I wonder if he heard from his mother that he was the child of the promise. I wonder if he heard from his mom regularly that God's promise to his father would be fulfilled through him. I can't help but wonder if Isaac didn't experience some level of purpose in his life. Some identity of the I am integral to this story. I can't but imagine that the sacrifice experience must have shaped him. It was in that moment that he learned that his father loved his God more than he loved him. Now, this isn't a major point this morning, parents, but I'm going to tell you this right now. Your kids need to know that. If your kids believe that you love them more than you love their God, then they are the center of the universe and they're little bitty gods for you. That's one of the best things you can do for your children is show them, husband and wife, that you love each other more than them and that together you love your God more than them. It doesn't make them insecure. In fact, it's the opposite. They see themselves fitting into a big picture with a big, able, capable God. Now, more details on Isaac. Isaac trusted God for a wife, apparently. We don't have a lot of details. We don't know if every day he's badgering Abraham, I need a wife, I need a wife. But he's not married until the age of 40. Those of you who are single and been single for a long time and you're thinking, man, is this ever going to happen? Be encouraged. Isaac here is 40 before this marriage is arranged by Abraham. I shared with you already, he sends Eleazar over to find this gal. He marries her, and let's, let's listen to the, read this little account just for the sake of context in chapter 24. I told you 25, but look at 24, verse 62. This is all context. We're just sort of building the story. Narratives are fun. If you really climb into them and you take in the details, man, they are really fun. Now, verse 62 of chapter 24. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. I hope that's sort of a worship meditation. I would expect maybe that's a little glimpse of faith in Isaac. Again, we don't know a lot about him, but he's going out to the field to meditate. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. You'd hear the music in the background. I don't know, uh, frozen music or something, you know? No, I see parents shaking their head. Please, no, no more frozen music. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Again, we don't know a lot of details about Isaac, but I like this little snapshot of Isaac. See, his covenant fueled his love for his wife. Those of you that think that your first dating love is going to fuel your marriage for decades are going to have a rude awakening when that actually happens. Dating love is awesome. That's not nothing. But that's not the kind of love that fuels a marriage properly. A marriage properly fueled is fueled by the covenant commitment that you've made to each other. And that's what you see right here. Covenant fuels love. Beautiful. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac trusted God for a wife and God provided one for her. It's not a fairy tale love story because fairy tale love stories would be against all odds. A princess loves a servant boy and they're not supposed to be together. This is arranged by Abraham and God blesses it. It's a great faith tale love story. Covenant fuels love. 
And then deja vu happens all over again. I can't remember who said that, but I love saying that. I love it. Deja vu all over again. Yogi Bear or Yogi somebody. You told me the other, last time I said it, Pam. Putting her on the spot. It's deja vu all over again. Rebecca is barren like her mother-in-law. You see the theme of famine and barrenness. Rebecca, like Sarah, was barren. Let's look in chapter 25, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. God made some promises to them at this point, specifically to Rebekah. Let's see what those promises are. These are key for the rest of the morning, these next two verses. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it's thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples formed within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And here's the key passage for this morning. The older shall serve the younger. The older of the twins shall serve the younger. See, that's not culturally acceptable. In this context, in this day and age, the oldest son of the family was the son that got the birthright and the blessing. That's just the way things work. Yet in this promise that's made to Rebekah, at the conception of these twins, is the older shall serve the younger. The twins were born to Isaac when he was 60 years old. Let's read a little further to capture a little more of the details, beginning in verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they call his name Clint Stevens. Oh, I'm sorry. Esau. I'm, I'm sorry, Clint. I just can't pass it up. It's just so good. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Jacob means deceiver or heel grabber. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. A little more details, a couple more verses here. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, manly man. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, let's gather these details here. Isaac loves Esau, the older, and Rebekah loves Jacob, the younger. Now, while God shared the plan with Rebekah that the older would serve the younger, I feel sure, I can't imagine she wouldn't have shared that with Isaac. Here it is 20 years later, and we have to wonder if Isaac has any mind to what God told Rebekah. It doesn't look like it. His favorite is Esau. Here he sits, apparently loving Esau more than Jacob. Of the two sons, it would make more sense for Isaac to love Esau since he was a manly man and was as manly as they came. What dad doesn't like a manly son? He's a hunter, and even better than being a hunter, he's a wild game cook. He's like Jay Hall. Jay can, he can, he can bring home the bacon, and he can fry it up in a pan. I mean, who wouldn't like a son like that? And Isaac enjoys him, loves him. Meanwhile, Jacob had an A in home economics. He hung around with mom and looked at Southern Living all day while Esau's out being a real man. Something else to consider that's interesting as you think about it is Isaac himself was a younger brother. You would think that if Rebecca shared this with him some 20 years earlier, or however many earlier years earlier they found out at this point, that he would be mindful of that when it comes time for the blessing, since he too was a younger brother to Ishmael, and he got the blessing instead of Ishmael. But he's not poised for that. He's poised instead to bless Esau. Now let's add in some more family dynamics beginning in verse 29. 
Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now the birthright connected to property. The birthright was connected to how much you were actually going to get of mom and dad's property. And here Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Later on in Hebrews in chapter 12, this is the example that's used of unholiness. It says, don't be unholy like Esau. Now, at this point, there's some cool little snapshots of faith in Isaac, some cool little snapshots of their marriage and trusting and meditating out in a field. But when you start to factor in all these other details, you realize we have a huge mess on our hands. You think your family has problems? Look at this family right here and realize there's some serious problems going on in this family. Dad loves the older. Mom loves the younger. Dad's supposed to bless the younger, but instead is poised to bless the older. And that's where we pick up in chapter 27, verse 1. This is a key passage for the rest of the morning. It's going to help you make sense of Isaac's disposition. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. This little picture of his eyes being dim so that he could not see is not just a physical issue with Esau or with, with Isaac. It is a spiritual problem with Isaac at this point. His eyes have grown dim through other issues, not just physical. Spiritually, he is not seeing what God wants. Though his wife inquired of the Lord, he, for some reason, has forgotten what God promised. The older shall serve the younger. Isaac is not in a good place because of his excessive love for his oldest son and his gumbo. And because he, unlike his wife, had not and was not inquiring of the Lord as to the Lord's plans. Let's continue on. We're going to read almost the rest of the chapter. Not quite all of it, but a good chunk of it. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, we all must know that good wild game is connected to how your soul feels. That's the truth. I don't know if you know that. Y'all are wondering if I'm serious. I'm really serious for those of you who eat wild game. That my soul might bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, my southern living reading son, come here. Obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats, good ones, so that I may prepare them for delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother is a hairy man, and I, though, am a smooth man. He's hairy, and I'm smooth. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself instead of a blessing. And his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. I know what I'm doing. I'm mom. Go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious gumbo, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. I have out in the margin written in my Bible, this is ridiculous. 
I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm going to put some animal skins on your hands and on the back of your neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she prepared into the furry hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father, I can imagine Southern Living reading, you know, house living, home ec, A plus, having Jacob trying to talk like manly Esau. You know, Esau must have had a lower voice. Oh, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, Well, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. And Isaac said to his son, How in the world have you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. And then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's. But the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. We were talking about this in staff meeting this week. And Scott just announced, just blurted out. He said, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I really just don't think I would have been fooled. Y'all don't think that's funny? We just roll with laughter. Oh, very good, Scott. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I don't think I would have been fooled. I don't know about you guys, but that wouldn't have put it over on me. But Isaac is fooled, and he blessed him. He said, are you really my son? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, listen to the content of his blessing. See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This weird story is the story that the Hebrews preacher references in the Heroes of the Faith chapter. Let that hit you just for a moment. If you weren't really curious at the end, I hope at this point you're really curious. Okay, this is a soup sandwich, pun intended. This is a mess. And this is the Heroes of the Faith reference in chapter 11, verse 20. It comes time for Isaac to bless his sons, so he asks Esau to go hunting and make some gumbo so they could enjoy some good grub when he blesses him. This tells us something about Isaac. He loved Esau more, and he loved that gumbo, I guarantee. He got to have that gumbo. His eyes were dim, but his taste was strong for venison and wild game. What is he fueled by there? Is he fueled by what God's best is? Is he fueled by the spirit or is he fueled by his own belly and his own love for his son? What he should have done before this event is fasted and prayed. Instead of getting ready for a big wild game meal, he should have been praying that God would give him a clear vision of his plan so that he would be squarely in step with his God. But he didn't. So Esau hunts. Rebecca and Jacob go to work. Rebecca whips up the grub while Jacob gets in Esau's best clothes and then puts the animal skins on his hands and his neck and fools Isaac. It's really ridiculous when you think about it. Where in the world is faith in this story? Now, I told you to pay attention or I asked you to pay attention to the content of the blessing. Some of those highlights of the blessing given accidentally to Jacob. Where may God give you the dew of heaven. May God give you the fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. May the people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Jacob snatches the blessing and then scoots out of there. 
You can imagine how fast he vacated that area. Okay, got to go, Dad. I'm out of here. Enjoy the rest of your meal. Got stuff to do. Now let's pick up in chapter, in chapter 27, verse 30. Here's what happens next. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and that includes you. Esau. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be. Away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. A little key passage in the story there, the last section that we read there, is Isaac trembling very violently. We'll talk in a moment about maybe why he's trembling very violently. And then Esau gets, instead of a blessing, he gets what we could call the anti-blessing. In some ways, we could even call it a curse. Away from the fat of the land. Away from the dew of heaven. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your younger brother. Isaac then actually goes on further in chapter 28, verses 3 and 4, to give a further blessing to Jacob. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful, Jacob, and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. May he give you the blessing of Abraham as you take possession of the land. I've asked you a couple times already to begin to chew on the question, why in the world of all the stories the Hebrews preacher could have chosen having to do with Isaac? He could have skipped Isaac. He could have just gone right from Abraham right on down to Jacob and left Isaac out of it, but he didn't. Of the stories he chose, he could have chosen the sacrifice event where apparently Isaac, maybe strong enough to be a young man to resist his father, didn't. He could have chosen that where he takes a wife, he marries her, and then he loves her. Covenant fuels love. Maybe praying for his barrenness. That's a picture of faith. But he didn't. This is the story that he chose. And I have some thoughts for you as to why. There are two wonderful faith pictures in Isaac, if you really take a good close look. And one thing we can learn about our God from this. Here's the first of those two things we can learn, or we can learn about faith. Yes, from Isaac. Here's the first. Isaac is faithful in follow-through. 
This has been the most encouraging point of the morning and the preparation for me. Isaac is faithful in follow-through. Though Rebecca was clued into God's plan, Isaac's eyes were dim. They were dimmed by his excessive love for his oldest and by, honestly, you see it as a theme throughout this story as his excessive love for wild game of all things. Fueled by all the wrong things, it's made him blind. We've got to know that Rebecca had shared with him what was promised to her that the older would serve the younger. Yet love misplaced had blinded him to God's plan. Love misplaced, hear that, had blinded him to God's plan. So he launches off into a hearty meal and a blessing, so he thinks, for his favorite son. We don't know why he trembled very violently when he realized he had been deceived. Maybe it's anger. Maybe he's angry at Jacob. Maybe he's angry with Rebecca, knowing that she sort of put together the whole plan. Jacob couldn't have done it on his own. Maybe he's frustrated that Rebecca would even do such a thing. Maybe he's angry with himself for being duped, Scott and the rest of us, seriously. (laughs) What a foolish way to be duped. But duped he was. Maybe he's angry with himself. Some think, I found, that he's trembling violently because he realized that God at that moment had reconciled his blindness and was working in spite of him. Listen to this little quote from A.W. Pink. A.W. Pink believes that he now realized that he had been out of harmony with the divine will at this moment where he's trembling very violently and that God had providentially intervened to affect his own counsels. He was awed to the depths of his very soul. Now, A.W. Pink is so sure about a lot of things. I can't be that sure that that's exactly what's going on there, but it could be. One thing we know for sure is what happens next after he trembles very violently. He did not revoke the blessing. That's one thing we know for sure. He did not revoke the blessing. And in fact, he said, yes, and he shall be blessed. Though his favorite son is in there with wailing, with big old ugly cry, puppy dog tears. He did not and would not revoke the blessing. He said, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, Esau, and all his brothers I have given him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my favorite son? He did not revoke the blessing, and instead went on to give the anti-blessing to his favorite son, How hard this must have been for Isaac. Just know that these people have wills. Know that Abraham was not willless when he was called to go to a land that he had never been. I'm sure he had had some plans for his life, things that he wanted to be and do. Know that here Isaac is not willless. He really enjoyed Esau. He's so manly and cooks such great food. He had big plans for Esau, I would imagine. But at some point, God's plans displaced his own. At the faith point, God's plans displaced his own. He realized and remembered at some point in this story the plans for the older to serve the younger. Though it wasn't pretty, he followed through in faith, trusting God's design and invoking future blessings on his sons. Now, three little lessons, three little sub-lessons for this first observation. Why would the Hebrews preacher share this with the Hebrews church, this little glimpse of Isaac? The more and more I've studied this passage, the more and more I've realized this passage of all the heroes of chapter 11 may have connected to the Hebrews' context more than any of the others. 
Because see, as, I, as Isaac's eyes had grown dim, the Hebrews' church's ears had grown dull. If you've been here for this Hebrews series, you know what was going on in the Hebrews' church. They, were, they weren't listening to God's best anymore. They were drifting away what God planned for them. And they were growing deaf to God's best, just like Isaac here had grown blind to God's best. They were losing the sight and sound of what it meant to be Christians and were considering going back to Judaism. They were losing sight of God's plan and God's best. And the Hebrews pastor calls them to finishing well in faith, like our boy Isaac. Go finish like Isaac. You're looking a lot like him right now. When his eyes were dim, but you can finish like he did. In this one little example, he reminds them God's plans won't be derailed, so don't get off the train. His plans will not be derailed, so don't get off the train. Open your eyes, open your ears, and finish well with Isaac. That's the first thing. The second thing, faith displaces personal preferences with God's preferences. We're seeing that in this chapter already, plenty. Faith displaces your personal preferences with God's will and preferences. What you want out of life may not be what God wants out of life for you. I want you all to hear me say that again. What you want out of life may not be what God wants to do with you and through you and for you and to you. I wonder what Abe wanted out of life when he was called to go to a land he'd never seen. Remember, he's not willless. He's bound to have some plans. The third thing. I was thinking, I was talking with Christy. If there were a panel of judges to Isaac's movement, you've watched gymnastics before, likely most of you, maybe not all of you, you watched gymnastics, you know, Olympic gymnastics and stuff. Now it's all digital, but I remember when I was a kid watching stuff like that, they had these cards they'd pull up, you know, you hold up a card, 8.5, you know, 8.6, whatever, you know, hold up the cards, row of judges. If there were a row of judges holding up cards on Isaac about midway through the story, they would have been holding up like 5.5. I mean, he's bobbling the routine. He's all over the place. He's fallen on his backside. He's flipped over. He's done all kind of crazy stuff that he wasn't supposed to do. And everybody in the crowd knows that we're all kind of uncomfortable. Oh, 5.5. But he finished the routine, and he ended. I told Chrissy this is funny. I said, he ended with a triple sow cow. And Chrissy said, you know, now you're talking ice skating. Oh, well, yeah, well, yeah, I know that. I knew that. I don't know what the little special moves are in gymnastics. Triple sow cow was what came to mind because it was very similar to the triple lindy, which you need to look up if you've never seen the triple lindy online. Go to YouTube. The triple lindy, the triple sow cow is the way he finishes up. He finishes so well, though he bobbled in midstream. What I enjoyed of these points is that the faith heroes are quite human. We're not looking at robots that do everything perfectly right. If you've bobbled before, mid-routine, you can be encouraged. Don't lose heart if you've loved something too much, or maybe you love something too much now, and you know you're bobbling. Man, God can redeem that. You can follow through with faith. If you've loved something too much, or you've loved someone too much, don't lose heart. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it in you. Right, Isaacs? Any other Isaacs needed to hear that? Anybody ever bobbled? I, man, I know it's a room full of bobblers because I know you and I know me. Man, this is good medicine. Uh, faith, you will not see unaccompanied by infirmity. You will always see faith and infirmity mixed together. Humanity. It shouldn't make you lazy. It should give you some heart. It should give you some encouragement to extend some grace to yourself and know that God can still redeem it in spite of your failings. 
in spite of your love for wild game or misplaced love for the wrong kid, man, that's encouraging to me. The second thing we can see about faith here is that Isaac's blessing, though almost misdirected, is faithful in content. He's faithful in follow-through, and his blessing, however it's directed, was faithful from the outset in content. See, Isaac is convinced that God will do what he's promised he will do. Remember the details of the promises there? The content of these blessings? Jacob's blessing, you're going to get the fatness of the earth. You're going to get plenty of grain and wine. Oh, by the way, the nations will serve you. They'll bow down to you. You're going to have the blessings of Abraham, and you're going to take possession of the land of your sojournings. Here's the funny thing. At this point, Isaac is making these blessings to Jacob while Isaac himself doesn't own a stitch of land. Not an acre. (laughs) Think about it. He's making these promises to his son. Meanwhile, he doesn't own an acre. The only thing he owns is the, the cave at Machpelah where they buried his dad. He owns that. But he doesn't own any of the rest of the land that's been promised to him. In fact, the chapter in front of this, chapter 26, Isaac will dig a well while he's in exile in Gerar. He'll dig a well, and they're like, hey, it's some good water, and everybody's drinking from it. And then the, the folks from Gerar show up and say, oh, no, you need to move that. You can't do that here. And he's moving from one place to another. (laughs) Not only does he not own a stitch of land, not an acre of land, he is a nomad and he's promising this land to them. Man, it's faithful in content. He doesn't have anything to show for what he's promising God will do for Jacob. He has no right to anything except the burial property. And on top of that, think about this. The promises he's making about all the wine you can drink and all the bread you can stuff in your belly are made during a famine. (laughs) It's during a famine. This is like a theme. And he's in exile in Gerar. Man, and it's in these contexts he makes these kinds of promises. This, brothers and sisters, is a great example of assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen because they hadn't seen any of it yet. Man, I wonder if the Hebrews church was encouraged as they thought on that verse 20, on that one verse about Isaac, as they really explored how familiar this must have seemed to the Hebrews church as they too are in a tight spot, sort of metaphorical famine and exile there in Rome. Under the heavy hand of the Roman Empire, being persecuted by their Jewish brothers and family members. Man, I wonder if this sounded familiar. And the Hebrews preacher is reminding them of the great promises of God. He's reminding them of the blessings that were given to Abraham and the blessings that were given to Isaac, the blessings that were given to Jacob, and then Israel gave to his sons. He's reminding them of those things. It must have been an encouragement to them. I hope it was an encouragement to them. Isaac's whole life at this point had been spent in promise limbo. Big, huge promises made to him, none of which he'd really realized. He's waiting for the promises made to Abraham to be fulfilled to your offspring. I will give this land. He is so sure. Some lessons couple of lessons from this. First, to parents. A.W. Pink had a quote that I thought was just really good dealing with parents. What this should do to you as a parent, as you consider the faithfulness of the content of his blessing. Though parents today are not thus supernaturally endowed to foretell the future of their children, we don't have the details that Abraham had or that Isaac had about their kids. Though we're not supernaturally endowed to tell the future of your children, nevertheless, it is your duty, moms and dads, and privilege to search the Scriptures and ascertain what promises God has left to the righteous and to their seed and plead them before Him. (laughs) 
plead them before him. And you could add to A.W. Pink's comment there, and to remind them of those promises. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege we have as parents. But what a high call. I'm reading that going, man, I don't do that. (laughs) But I needed to hear that. What a great responsibility and great call. The first lesson had to do with parents. The second lesson has to do with perspective. Though the Hebrews' church may be losing what little acreage, we use that figuratively, they have in Rome, though they may be losing what little of city that they had, they are being encouraged to live for the city to come, like Abraham. Listen to these passages. Brad would have shared these. I think Scott shared at least one of these also. In Hebrews chapter 11, just listen, beginning in verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Man, that is a beautiful point that we need to consider right here. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, they had not realized, yet they lived as if they were done deals. They were living for the city to come. And these promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob are the promises that are being made to the Hebrews church, and they're the promises that are made to Crosspoint Fellowship now 2,000 years after Christ. We too are to be living for the city to come. We have something different than what they have, is that we are 2,000 years this side of the ultimate promise that's been realized for us in Christ. All the more reason for us to live for the city to come. Wow, we have Jesus. Man, what city are you living for? Should you lose something or lose all? What do you have that's already been promised to you? This last week, there was a big thing going on with the city council. A city council meeting, I guess that was Tuesday night, Monday, no, Tuesday night. And the on discussion or on the ballot, not ballot, on the, I don't know what they call it. Brent would know. Agenda, yes, thank you. <laughs> Who bailed me out there? Thanks, Jeff. Um, on the agenda was a discussion about the why. And, man, there were a couple hundred people there appealing. Don't, don't let the why die. I was one of those appealing. But all the while as I'm appealing, I'm knowing that why or not, we're going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, Greenville isn't just going to fold. You know, I'm not going to die without a YMCA. I mean, I can share my heart's desires that we continue with a Y, but if we lose that, I've got so many promises. You have so many promises already that should sustain us. Whether we lose our Y or not, what's the big deal? Whether Miriam, Abraham, loses her freedom or not, What's the big deal given what's been promised to us? I don't know what the latest is with Miriam. Last I heard, she was coming to the States or something. But let's say she loses her freedom. Or let's say like some of these guys that have been crucified, these Christians that have been crucified these last couple of weeks that ultimately lose their lives. Consider what we already have in the city to come. What are you living for? Are you living in a way that's agile and mobile Are you attentive and responsive to what God has called you to? Maybe he's called you, young newlywed parents, to have children. Are you living responsive to that? Maybe he's called you to teach kids. Maybe you've never taught before. But you're feeling like, man, I just feel like the Lord's leading me to do something scary. Well, that's faith. Yeah, he is. That's what he does. Maybe he's calling you to shepherd a small group. I couldn't do that. I said that almost 20 years ago out in Columbia, South Carolina. I couldn't teach a Bible study class. That's scary. 
Man, those things are familiar to everybody that's been on a faith journey. Maybe he's calling you next summer to go be part of a church plant. Crosspoint's going to plant next summer, Lord willing. Maybe he's calling you to be part of that. Are you agile and mobile enough to where you can live for the city to come, that you can go? Maybe he's calling you, maybe for the first time, fathers or some of you functional shepherds and moms to shepherd for the first time, to start leading your family in faith. Scary? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's scary. They're going to look at you with a thousand-yard stare. Or if they're little bitty wee kids, they're going to be sitting on their heads. They're going to be rolling around on the floor, and you're going to be thinking, is this anything? Yeah. Are you agile and mobile enough to do what he's called you to do, living for the city to come? Are you agile and mobile enough living for the city to come that you maybe start tithing? Some of you that aren't giving back to the Lord after all that he's given you. Maybe start tithing. Maybe that's where you start. Living for the city to come. Faith fuels you to do some things that are scary. The rest of the world's going, man, that's a car payment. You crazy? You could have a nice car. And you're like, man, I ain't living for my car. <laughs> the car's okay but I'm living for the city to come. Maybe he's leading you to give above a tithe and to give above a tenth. Man, scary, but cool. Maybe he's calling you to serve alongside a ministry like Rafa. Scary, sitting down with young ladies that might be considering aborting their little babies. Scary, but man, cool, faith stuff, because you're living for the city to come. You would take time out of your regular busy week where you're going 800 miles an hour to walk at three miles an hour walking pace with some young mom or some of you men to walk with some young fathers-to-be, accidental fathers. Man, that's living for the city to come right there. Maybe you go serve with some ministry that has to do with missions. Maybe you go to the far corners of the field. Are you agile and mobile enough that faith could fuel something like that? Are you that convinced about the city to come where you would walk away from the American dream to go live in some foreign land and to sow the truth into some foreigner's life? Maybe it's adopting orphans. Maybe it's caring for widows. Man, the list just goes on and on and on. I hope that faith would fuel some things like that in each of us. The thing I want to share with you about God, this is the last point. The first two things had to do with Isaac, little glimpses of faith in him. He's faithful in follow-through. And then the second thing, he's faithful in the content of his blessing. And we learn something about how faithful our God is from this story because he's the ultimate hero behind Hebrews chapter 11. He's the ultimate hero. John Owen said this about this story. It's a little, the, the language is a little bit old, so do your best to follow. It's not real long. There is none other story in the Scripture filled with more intricacies and difficulties as unto a right judgment of the things related. Speaking of this story of Isaac blessing Jacob. Though the matter of fact be clearly and distinctly set down. And here's the matter of fact, he says. The whole represents unto us divine sovereignty, wisdom, and faithfulness working effectually through the frailties, infirmities, and sins of all the persons concerned in the matter. Thank you, John, for pointing with a big arrow to God's sovereignty and God's design in spite of people. In spite of a bunch of bobblers, right? God protects the covenant with his plan. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Man, that's good medicine right there. In spite of a man who loved a son too much and venison too much. In spite of a woman who crafted her own design to help God along, in spite of a son's deceit and another son's short-sighted gluttony, he will make good on his promise to Abraham. We're the fruit of that promise. 
He did make good on it. We're the nations that were and are blessed by God's faithfulness. Man, God is faithful. And something else that you have got to enjoy about God from this story is there is a beautiful pattern emerging. I have one more verse I want you to turn to in 1 Corinthians. This will be, leads us into the supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This encouraged me as well. I hope this next thought, brief thought, encourages you. There's a pattern emerging. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Imagine that you're one of the Corinthians. Imagine that you're in a church. You have your own will. You have your own thoughts. You have your own things that you're thinking about. Imagine that you, like the Corinthian church, are hearing these words as church members. Listen to this, these words from Paul. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of our God. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, if anything, boast in the Lord. Man, there's a beautiful pattern emerging here where God seems to take the foolish things that confound the wise. He tastes the light, the least likely for his plans, so that he'll get the glory. He takes barrenness. Sarah was barren and old. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. Hannah was barren. Samson's mother was barren. Elizabeth was barren, John the Baptist's mom. And then he takes the younger and blesses them over the older. Abel was chosen over Cain. Abel was the younger. Shem was chosen over Japheth. Shem was the younger. Some believe that Abraham was the younger of his brothers. We don't know that for sure. But the way they're listed at times gives the indication that maybe he's one of the younger. We know for sure Isaac was the younger. And we know for sure Jacob is the younger. You can keep this in mind as we move forward in this faith chapter. You're going to see it over and over and over again. A couple weeks, we're going to see Jacob, later called Israel, blessing Joseph's sons and doing the divine switcheroo with Manasseh and Ephraim. It happened over and over again. David, the youngest of a flock of boys, was chosen to be king. And then Jesus didn't pick the finest, the MVPs, the smartest and the brightest. He picked a bunch of fishermen and a bunch of tax collectors, the most despised in the world and the lowest in the world. That's who he picked to get his glory through. It's a cool theme if you're not a superstar. If you're a superstar, you're bumming. But if you're like me, this chokes me up a lot every time I go to it. I grew up an overweight kid that stuttered. I stuttered so bad I couldn't get a sentence out. Years of speech therapy. What in the world are you doing with me right here? Doing this. An angry dude at that. And I'm supposed to shepherd gently? <laughs> Man, he takes the foolish things that confound the wise. It confounds me. Why in the world would he take the likes of me or the likes of you? I know you. 
If you think you have to be something special to be used by God, I've got news for you. He likes using the least likely to succeed so that he'll get the glory when something awesome happens. Man, be encouraged when you see a dude like Isaac that God used for his glory. God is faithful, and he chooses the foolish things that confound the wise. Man. Clint, you can go ahead and come on up. We're going to have our supper, and um, I think I'll pray, and we'll distribute the elements, and then I'll share this passage with you from this story that we'll consider as we take our supper together. Let's pray. God, what a comfort. What a comfort to see a pretty ordinary dude. What a comfort to see an ordinary dude that you use. A dude that finishes well in faith. A a man that believes you for every word that you've said. God, I'm thankful to see his follow-through, and I'm even thankful to see his bobbling. It's an encouragement to me that you use the foolish things to confound the wise. I'm thankful that you protect your plan, that nothing that you aim to do, that your will will never be thwarted. I'm thankful that you are sovereign and you are absolutely powerful. That comforts me. God, we are thankful for this snapshot of Isaac today. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.